Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. I'd like to uh, begin. Um, I, I don't know if you remember a few months ago I shared about my refuge house, a ministry, that nonprofit that um, uh, a few of us in this church actually were a part of that started about 12 years ago. Um, there was a, it, it's located in the Philippines, Cebu Island, and um, it houses um, children who have been sexually exploited in the commercial sex trafficking. I uh, received word a couple of days ago that a huge typhoon hit the Philippines, um, and the um, shelters that these kids are staying in was pretty much decimated. And so um, I want to start out um, this morning, if we could just say a prayer for those children and the staff that are working there. God, thank you for um, giving us a chance to pray. And as details are coming in slowly, um, I ask that you would be with each of the children, each of the staff. That God, you would guide their hearts, that you would allow them to experience your love and grace in community with one another, and that, God, there would just be an outpouring uh, towards them. You know, in this uh, Advent season, what a, it's just a horrible thing to happen at any time, but I know that um, they were ramping up for celebrations. And, and so, God, I pray that you would be by their side. And God, as we pay attention to your spirit today, I ask that you would help us to expand our vision, um, that we would see the world the way you see the world. You would enlarge our hearts and that, God, we would see uh, what the reason for the season is. And so, God, uh, use this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if you've been watching all the Marvel movies. I know I'm a little bit behind, but I grew up, you know, with Marvel comics and all of that. And one of the favorite things I like about the, all the um, stories of superheroes is when they talk about how they became a superhero. It's those beginning narratives, and it helps like me form, you know, what, why they are the way they are, and how they are like using their superhero powers <laughs> to save the world. That's always been like a, a fascinating, um, you know, part of you know, those storylines. I don't know if you know, but in ancient history, you'll find that in many genres of literature, um, that they actually have a genre of, um, you know, the birth narratives, or sometimes it's commonly referred to as the birth of a hero. And so in these, these heroes, these gods, there's great attention paid to how they began. I mean, you have, um, you know, the Greek gods and even philosophers like Pythagoras or uh, or the birth of Achilles and Aphrodite, and, and even Helen of Troy, it was told that she was birth, she, was, she wasn't birth, but hatched from an egg. Now, isn't that fascinating, right? And so you, you hear all these stories, but one of the things we find in Scripture is that Scripture also uses these birth narratives, right, to help inform who the people are. And so in Scripture, you know, we find the birth narratives around Isaac and Samuel and, of course, Jesus. Uh, but there's one in particular um, in the book of Genesis where we have the birth of twins, Isaac and Ishmael. Where in Genesis, we find the birth of two great nations. But in this birth narrative, we find that even from the womb, Isaac and Ishmael were in conflict. 
And so, and as Genesis tells us that story, what it eventually shows us is that conflict from the womb foreshadows what was to come. And in their lives, you know, between Isaac and Ishmael, there was hostility between these two brothers, not only in their lifetime, but, but in what we see today in these two nations still, like, experiencing hostility. And in this birth narrative, you know, they're forever connected by birth. And so when Scripture looks at birth narratives, it's, it's to highlight something that's very important. It sets up the rest of the life. It sets up the trajectory for what's going on. And that's why when Scripture speaks of the birth of Christ, it's calling us to pay attention, to look at what happened in the beginning, because what happens in the beginning informs the rest of the life of Christ. It, it foreshadows, it, it looks at, and it also helps us to see what the reason for the season is. Because if we don't pay attention to the birth narratives, then we're going to maybe assume that it's about family gatherings and buying presents and things like that, which aren't necessarily bad. But I don't think that was the thing that was celebrated from the very beginning. And so in the birth narrative of Jesus, we find that you know Mary and Elizabeth were both pregnant, and somehow they, they have this meeting, and within Elizabeth's, you know, Womb, there's this like movement, right? And there's this, this leaping of joy because Jesus was also in the womb of Mary. And so we have in this first initial meeting, in essence, Jesus and John baptized in the water of their mother's womb. And it foreshadows the, the future, right? That one day they will meet in the waters of baptism and and together, they would just form this, like, amazing ministry of, of repentance and renewal. But that birth narrative just doesn't just focus on John and Jesus, but it also, you know, highlights a very important person in that narrative, and that's, it's the mother Mary. And so after Mary encounters this, this um, experience with, with Elizabeth, she proclaims... Um, in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, if we can have it. Um, I won't read the whole prayer of Mary, but I want to um, highlight the certain portion. And she says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and, he, and the rich he has sent away. Now, now think about that in this birth narrative. As I said, whatever happens in the birth narrative is vitally important to understanding, you know, who Christ is. And in this birth narrative, you find some pretty um, alarming things. I mean, think about it. That Mary, who was probably maybe 13 years old at this time, is speaking prophetically about who the Christ will be that the Christ will bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. And he will fill the hungry with good things and the rich he will send away empty. Now imagine posting that on your Christmas card. <laughs> it's not something we want to do because, I mean, that, that sounds, I mean, maybe the fill the hungry with good things is great. But to just post, he has sent the rich away empty, that's, that's a little bit hard to swallow. 
And, and so what, what I'm, I'm seeing in this passage is that for Mary in her personal location and experience, she is like proclaiming the good news, right? Because of her experience as a person who is, is in poverty. And she is seeing that the Messiah has come to help out people like her. But, but, the, but she's also saying the rich he's sending away empty. And that somehow in this passage, I'm, I'm gathering that if the rich were listening in on what Mary was saying, they probably would be like, hmm, I'm not sure about this one. This doesn't sound very joyful to me. In fact, the words are downright um, disturbing. And so as we, you know, pay further attention to this, um, what we find is in this birth narrative, right? What I said earlier is that it expands, right, into the future. And then what we find, what Luke is trying to do, is draw a line of connection from Luke chapter 1 to Luke chapter 4. When Jesus now, after his baptism, and remember Mary's words occurred right, you know, before she met, you know, John the Baptist in the womb. And now, right after that, she proclaims the Magnificat. And after the baptism of Jesus now, he proclaims these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And so Jesus takes what Mary said, that, that you know, she, she's crying out for for help for those who are hungry. But Jesus in Luke chapter 4 expands that narrative, and it's not just good news to the poor, as in Mary's situation. But Jesus now quotes, right, from the Old Testament and says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And so the coming of Christ isn't just for the poor, but it's also for those who are imprisoned. And recovery of sight for the blind, for those who are experiencing disabilities. And health problems. He is, you know, to, to set the oppressed free for marginalized people, those who are hurting. Jesus is saying, this is why I have come. I have come because this is what God is doing in trying to tell each and every person that feels the weight of whatever oppressive powers are out there because of something in terms of their health or some person who was oppressing them from the outside, whatever it might be, Jesus is telling each person, you are not forgotten. You are important and you matter. And I think this is why for the past few months, you know, we, we've been trying to reopen as a church. But in our reopening process, we knew that it wasn't about trying to like make LBCF survive because all around the, the U.S., you know, churches were losing members and everyone was in kind of in the state of like oh no what are we going to do we're going to lose like tithing we're going to lose um we're going to lose our, our mortgage whatever it might be right there was a lot of there's a lot of fear in the churches but i know as a church what we have been continually highlighting is that this is this is who we are we as a church don't exist for survival but to demonstrate the love of christ and how do we do that well and so for the past few months, you know, we've come alongside families who have lost loved ones with New Hope Grief Counseling, where we, we provided meals for them, people who have, who have experienced death in their family. The, you know, more recently, you know, um, 
Africa New Day, you know, we've highlighted the work that they're doing in Congo and the impoverished communities where they're helping children, you know, learn skills to develop, you know, in the business world. For our Advent giving, as we pray today, Creative Hope International is working in communities in the Himalayas and Cambodia where they are bringing love and creativity, you know, to help embody what justice, beauty, and hope looks like. And again, you know, we partnered with Precious Lamb uh, families, you know, experiencing the, the threat of homelessness by providing meals during Thanksgiving. And, and during Christmas, we filled, you know, laundry baskets with, with things that necessary items, you know, for the moms and the children. And just yesterday, we brought um, 22 gifts to uh, two foster homes in, in Torrance and Gardena. We've been doing this as a church because people matter. And it's not about the growth of this church, but it's about how we can demonstrate the love of Christ to our community. That we want to always be like centered on what, what God is doing, what, what the Advent story reveals to us, that this is who we are. And no matter how, like, hard church gets, that we don't forget that the most important commandment is to love. And so we try to, like, pay attention, like, right, to what Jesus says, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set oppressed people free. And what does that mean for our community? And I know, I remember, you know, Abby and I, or Abby received this um, text message from a good friend of ours years ago. And she said she just found out that someone that, lived, that went to school close to our home, we live in La Mirada, and there's a person who had graduated from Biola University who had just come out, come out as a trans man. And in the message to Abby, it said that this person just came out to the parents, just graduated from college, and immediately, this person was, um, was disowned by their family. They took away his car. They took away all the things that they had given them. They wouldn't use um, the name he wanted to be called. And, and there was just this, like, he was like, you know, Biola was shutting down because of the summer break. And he was about to become homeless. And so... Our friend asked my wife, do you know anyone in La Mirada who can take him in? And we were like, well, we live in La Mirada. <laughs> and so we um, said, you know what, we'll, 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 we'll invite him to our house. What was supposed to be a month or two turned out to be nine months. Um, here was a guy who, you know, throughout college life was experiencing so much um, gender dysphoria. There was so much suicidal ideation. He was in and out of hospitals because of self-harm. And honestly, Abby and I had never really been in contact with a trans person before. Um, and so we had no idea. I mean, this was like a mystery for us. But being with him and just hearing his pain and his suffering, especially as we entered into the Advent season, there were so many nights where he would just cry, and there was just this, this loneliness. 
because he had been cut off. He had been cut off from family. I remember this one conversation, you know, as we were thinking about Christmas. He said, I have no family. I have no mom and dad right now that will give us give me a gift or to eat a meal with. So we said to him, we will be your family. You're welcome here for as long as you know you need to. And as he, you know, was in this period of recovery and transition, um Thankfully, he got to a better place, and, you know, this was back in 2015, I think, and he actually lives in Chicago now, and he came down for the weekend about a month ago, and he asked if we could have dinner, and we met, um, and he was just, like, crying and just telling me how much that season of life meant for him. I remember looking back at him and thinking and telling him, um, I'm, I'm grateful that you experienced that, like, love from us, but I want you to know that your presence in our family helped us so much. Because in the mystery of all that's going on in the world, and, like, you know, there's a quote that says, we fear what we do not know. And there was a lot of things I didn't know about trans people, but this person incarnated what what a human being was and is. And so I told him in that dinner, I want you to know that um, you might think that we loved on you, but you taught us how to love. You taught us how to become more human. You taught us what it means to love even if we feel uncomfortable in the beginning. You taught us that it doesn't matter where people are at, what they're going through, that the bottom line is Jesus calls us to love no matter how hard it is. And that the Advent story is about God coming to humankind, right? That while we were yet sinners, Christ comes. And yet what we have in society today is this polarization that some of us are downright scared to gather in our families during Christmas because it feels so toxic. We have placed labels on each other that makes it easy for us not to love. We place labels that make the other person seem a little weird or delirious, when in actuality what the Advent story tells us is that those who believe have the right to be called children of God, that God is saying to us, that look at people with the eyes of God. Look at one another the way God sees people. That God is inviting all of us to participate in this beautiful family. And we are all to be called God's children. And so if there's a label you are placing on another person so that you will like somehow keep your heart from loving, then maybe there's something there that the Advent story can can help us to see. And so that's why I love what this church has gone through the past few years. You know, last year, the church released a statement on LGBTQ sexual ethic outline to, you know, share the discernment process, you know, that the church was going through. And, you know, even more recently, we updated it to make it more clear for LGBTQ people. I want to read to you a part of it. 
and says that practice this means we affirm those who identify as LGBTQ. We can celebrate and affirm same-sex relationships and marriage as important families in our community. But also in practice, this means we honor LGBTQ people who choose to remain celibate as a way to live in congruence to their spiritual conviction. We hear what we're saying, that both traditional and non-traditional viewpoints are welcome here. But that we want to say that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you belong. You matter. We affirm you. And this isn't just right for LGBTQ people, but, you know, for those who have not felt welcome in churches, if you've experienced divorce, if you are a woman who came from a church that didn't allow women teachers or pastors, guess what? You are welcome here. If you're undocumented, if you're black, indigenous, and a person of color who has felt the weight of racism, you are welcome here. And so as a church, how do we care for veterans who have experienced all kinds of atrocities that are struggling to reintegrate into society and even church? How do we come alongside people with disabilities or to walk alongside those with, with mental illness? Or even if you're here and you feel like you're losing your faith, you don't know what you believe. And there are moments where you say, I don't believe in God. You are welcome here. You belong. Because no matter what you believe, we want to say we love you. We see the image of God in you. We want to be a church that is radically inclusive and welcoming of all people. And that it's, it's high time that we don't play into that narrative of saying, you're not in our tribe. You don't belong to us. You, you, we disagree with you. And if some of the stuff I've said so far feels very uncomfortable, I, I can imagine. Because, you know, growing up, you know, in my Christian life as a Southern Baptist, some of the stuff I've said, you know, like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable. Right? Women pastors? No, no. We can't have women pastors. What? Divorced people and leadership? Oh, what have we done? We have compromised. Um, that was my past. And I'm thankful that God has brought me to a place where, you know what? Um, Jesus' life on earth was radically inclusive. And I know for a lot of the religious community that um, watched Jesus live his life and expand on this vision, what Jesus did was severely uncomfortable. He spent time with Samaritans and even highlighted a good Samaritan in the story. God forbid, a Samaritan who was this half-bred, you know, compromiser who, probably, who had, like, false theology and their understanding of worship and all of that. And somehow Jesus said, no, I'm not going there. This person is worthy of love. When religious people were saying, Jesus, you aren't obeying the clear teaching of Sabbath. Why are you allowing your disciples to work? Jesus was able to say, you know what? If people are hungry, let them work. And what Jesus does for us is he shows us who God is. 
in a way that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets could never do. They tried their best to encapsulate who God is and His majesty and His magnificence, but words could only like point the way. And what do the words of the laws and prophets point towards? It's to Christ who perfectly embodies who Christ is. The Christ in the flesh manifesting how to interpret the scriptures. Finally, for all people, and Jesus was able to say, if you use scripture to oppress, if you use scripture to cause harm, you are probably not interpreting the scriptures the way God intended. Because this is how to read scripture. If someone's hungry, if, if someone is on the outside, I don't care what you believe, you're reading Scripture wrong. Because Scripture, all of it, has to point to the greatest commandment is to love. Jesus says, love is the fulfillment of the laws and the prophets. And if you can't do that, then you have fallen short of the understanding of God as revealed in Christ. Jesus models for us who God is. And that's why we as a church choose to be scandalous if we need to be scandalous. That's why we as a church choose to be uncomfortable when, when it's uncomfortable. Because when we lean into the discomfort, we begin to see how great the love of God actually is. And in Galatians 4, now the scriptures tell us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Galatians says, in the fullness of time, and in my seminary, we had a lot of debates what the fullness of time was. I don't know if you've ever heard messages on this passage, but a lot of times people will say, well, the fullness of time, Jesus came in the perfect time, and this must mean that it's because of the Roman language that unified all these different geographical areas and, and the Roman roads that paved the way for like missionaries to go all over the place. Maybe that's what we mean by the fullness of time. But I don't think that's what Paul was actually trying to say. I think what Paul was trying to say is found in the context of Galatians, the previous chapter, Galatians chapter 3 where Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are one, all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. And I think what Paul is trying to say is that all these separations, guys, you are all one. And the fullness of time happens to be a time where it was radically divided, where politically, socially, religiously, it was a very dark time in the history of the world. There were people who weren't allowed to enter into the temple and told to stay on the outside. People were discriminated against because you were someone who had eczema or a skin rash that day or even if you were on your menstrual cycle. People were separated based on what they ate, what sex you were, where you came from, if your parents were biracial. I mean, there was a lot of inequality. There was a lot of inequality propagated by the religious, political, and social world. 
And because of that, a lot of people felt like they were outcasts. They were on the outside. But Jesus, Jesus, like, expands, right? And that's what we're trying to do. What Mary started out with, like, help the poor. Jesus expands further. And and the kingdom of God is just expanding it as far as we can go. And so I'm convinced that Jesus came in the fullness of time. On that, full, on that first Christmas day, when the world was at its darkest, there came this flicker of light. And if we would, like the wise men and the shepherds, huddle around the Christ in worship, in adoration, And see what this birth narrative tells us. That the reason for the season is that we might share the love of Christ to everyone who feels like they don't belong, who feels forgotten. I want to share a a picture that I um, took back in um, 2003. Um, I was visiting a patient in hospice, which means that they only had about six months left to live. And it was September, and, uh, you know, there was a, let me read to you what I wrote. I walked into a house yesterday with a living room fully decorated for Christmas. I had to remind myself it was September. There were presents under the Santa Claus figure, the Christmas tree was trimmed, and the walls were lined with Christmas decor. I found out this this elder lady had a son that walked out on her years ago. She kept everything the same way. She was hoping her son would return, hoping to finally give him his present. Sometimes the people we hope will visit never do. But sometimes God calls us to be the ones who visit the forgotten elderly. And in so doing, discover that they are worthy of love. On that September day, I was so confused because, I mean, I only show you one one part of the house, but the whole living room was decorated in Christmas because it was that time of season where her son walked away from her six years previous. Christmas tree was there, everything. It was like time stood still. And she was waiting for her son to come home. And honestly, I don't know the story. I don't know why the son never came back. Maybe she wasn't a great mom. I have no idea. But I remember telling myself that it doesn't matter what the story is. That God still wanted me there. And so I decided to like visit her continually. Um, and every other week I would go, and sometimes I'd bring my wife, and my daughter came with me to, during Advent when she used to dance hula praise, and she sang, she danced, um, you know, it's kind of a pri- private-like hula show for, for this woman that she thoroughly enjoyed. But we became friends, and I kept waiting for the son to return, and he never did. 
But what mattered to me that God had not forgotten this woman and we became friends until she passed. Each of us is in proximity to someone who suffers. Each of us is in proximity to someone who feels lonely. And it's easy to just be busy for maybe good reasons and maybe just not feel like we can muster up enough time. But if we can remember the reason for the season, I ask that in your family gatherings, whatever first labels you see in your mind when you think of somebody that feels uncomfortable to love, will you pause and take captive that thought and make it obedient to Christ? Would you pause and ask God to give you the eyes of Jesus and to say it doesn't matter what the story is, you are a person worthy of love, and I am here to love and to receive love from you. And I pray that in so doing, um, that little flicker of light that began on that first advent would continue to shine brightly through us. And so as we transition into uh, communion, I'd like to call the middle schoolers to come up who are um, asked to serve. You know, when we partake of the cup, it's been called the cup of suffering. It's to join in the sufferings of Christ. Um, and, and I think this is, you know, what, what this is. It's not just for us to do this tradition for the sake of tradition. But pay attention to why this is important. As we partake in the bread and the cup, we join in the sufferings of Christ. We join in with the mission of Christ. We take up the cross. And we, um, we live and love like Jesus did. And so as you come forward, reflect on that. Ask God to open your eyes, our eyes. And as we allow our eyes to be open, what we'll find is that when we're willing to cross those lines that are initially scary to cross, we'll discover that in the process, God is in fact saving us from our apathy, causing us to become more human, teaching us what it means to be more Christ-like. And so pay attention. Ask the Spirit of God to open our eyes. Father, we thank you for your words to us. May your spirit help us glean what we need to glean. Help us act in the places we need to act. Most importantly, teach us to love well. In Christ's name, amen.